You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I will use regimens for the benefit of the ill in accordance with my ability and my judgment, but from what is to their harm or injustice, I will keep them. Physicians taking the Hippocratic Oath pledge these values to all patients, including those cared for during times of war. But what happens when physicians compromise their role as members of a humane and respected profession? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Minneapolis, Minnesota, is Dr. Stephen Miles, author of Oath Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity, and the War on Terror. Dr. Miles is an expert in medical ethics, human rights, and international health care. He is a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School and a practicing physician. Welcome, Dr. Miles. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Miles, you dedicate your book to colleagues worldwide who understand that those who profess to be healers have a duty to protect prisoners from maltreatment. What do you want physicians and other medical professionals to take away from your book? Well, when I took a look at torture worldwide, one of the things that I discovered is that torture is practiced in perhaps 100 countries, and that 60% of the survivors of torture report seeing a health professional directly involved in administering that torture. Uh, Sometimes the physician is in the room to give a medical go-ahead so that the person can take more pain without being killed. Sometimes the physician uh, treats a wound that's been inflicted by the torturers and then sends them back for more torture. And that does not count the people who are tortured to death who never see the doctor who signs a false death certificate. It is important for physicians to be an active part of the global struggle against torture. And indeed, the U.S. medical profession has performed that role. We have done so with regard to supporting our colleagues in Chile when they were protesting torture under the government of General Pinochet. Uh, We have done so with regard to protesting the abuse of Soviet psychiatry and the imprisonment of our colleague, Dr. Anatoly Koryagin, and we must uh, continue uh, that advocacy. And that advocacy brings us home when our own government embarks on the abuse of prisoners. Why is it so important that all people not dismiss the abuse of prisoners of war as rough justice for terrorists or just part of war? And why is it particularly necessary for medical personnel to protect prisoners from abuse? Because the Geneva Accords and the Convention Against Torture work. Anybody who has ever filled out an amnesty letter appealing to those standards has seen how they can produce the release of prisoners. And indeed, we have appealed to those standards to secure better treatment for our own soldiers who are taken POW. What the world said at the end of World War II was very simple. No appeal to national sovereignty, no appeal to national emergency can justify torture. And what we have said to the world right now is that a chief executive can appeal to national sovereignty and national emergency to justify torture. And we have said that to regimes around the world that we really don't want to take that lesson, regimes like in Liberia, for example. And so we have to help strengthen the system of international law so that all governments feel accountable to it and know that they will be held accountable to it. And if we won't hold ourselves accountable to it, that international framework of law is weakened. 
that notion of cruelty or sacrifice of one in order to save many is an intriguing proposition, both in theory and in reality, because it's a compelling scenario that leads thoughtful individuals, including those in the medical profession, to come down on both sides of the argument. Let's discuss the case against interrogational torture. Well, the case against interrogational torture is pretty clear. Number one, it produces bad information. In fact, the piece of information that Saddam Hussein and uh, al-Qaeda were cooperating on bioweapons came from a guy that we took to Egypt and had tortured. And he produced that kind of information. And that worked its way all the way into the State of the Union address, or, or I'm sorry, the President's address to the American people on the uh, eve of the war, and also to uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell's address at the United Nations. Number two, we are sending our soldiers out on dangerous sorties, which are essentially based on wild goose chases to chase down torture-acquired information. Number three, torture radicalizes the population against which it's addressed. Uh, in Iraq, for example, the support for the U.S. presence in Iraq dropped from 66% down to 23% before and after the Abu Ghraib pictures came out, according to our own polling data. Number four, torture has a really interesting effect on prisoners. Although clinicians are more interested in the question of treating post-traumatic stress disorder in, in uh, tortured survivors, one of the things that torture does is it convinces prisoners of the evil of the torturing authority. It serves as, as almost a, a rite of passage which validates their integrity to their peers and hardens them in their radical opposition to the torturing authority. And so that torture actually turns out to be enormously counterproductive in radicalizing the extremist elements and in also radicalizing the population from which the extremist elements draw support. Let's talk, though, about a scenario that seems to be prompting, has prompted torture in, in this war, the ticking time bomb scenario. Tell us about that and how it's been used by the U.S. as a reason for using harsh treatment on detainees. The ticking time bomb scenario goes like this. Anybody who's seen uh, the television show 24 or Mission Impossible knows this scenario. There's a, usually a clock, usually a digital clock that goes down by hundreds of a second. And uh, somebody tortures somebody and gets uh, a critical piece of information to go and do an intervention to stop this bomb and uh, save a large group of people. The fact is that in Intelligence just doesn't work that way. First off, you don't know the level of violence that will break a person or which will cause them to release a falsehood. Uh, number two, rarely is there a situation where one piece of information empowers immediate action which can prevent a catastrophe. Three, I know this is hard to believe, but it's the CIA's conclusion and the National Intelligence Agency's um, security estimate. You can go find this report on my website at Human Rights Watch or Human Rights Library. Uh, there's a huge analysis of this, of how to obtain information during interrogation. Rapport building, negotiation, and contracting actually work better than torture. I've looked at the oh, seven or so instances in which the U.S. government has claimed a ticking time bomb scenario in the present war on terror. None of them hold up to scrutiny.
If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Stephen Miles, author of Oath Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity, and the War on Terror. Dr. Miles, you mentioned the times when the ticking time bomb scenario has been credited with being successful. Could you tell us about an example when the ticking time bomb scenario was used and credited with being a success when it really wasn't? Schlesinger, former Secretary of Defense, was appointed by Rumsfeld to go and evaluate the issues over at Abu Ghraib, and he included a section on his report called the moral case for torture or something like that, in which he said, of course, we would only agree to use torture. As a civilized country, we would only agree to use torture in a ticking time bomb scenario. And then he goes to cite this case of a guy who, a lieutenant, who uh, heard that uh, a Iraqi was plotting a attack on his unit. He sent his soldiers out to grab this guy. They tortured him. The guy revealed the names of his co-conspirators. The attack was averted. And what this uh, soldier did, lieutenant did, was he fired a gun right next to the guy's head, and that was what finally produced the uh, information about uh, who the co-conspirators were. And Schlesinger cited this case as a example of the successful use of a ticking time bomb interrogation. Well, I actually found all the reports pertaining to that incident, and the real story went like this. This guy was working for us. There was no reason to discount his loyalty. This was at a time in Iraq when people were collecting bounties for naming insurgents. And they get this report that this guy's planning an attack. Uh, We did pick him up at his house. We beat him up. We beat him up in front of a physician's assistant. And then uh, he was uh, threatened with a knife. And finally, the lieutenant colonel took him outside, stuck his head in a barrel, and fired a gun, at which point the guy began crying and gave out these names. Well, it's important to note that these two names never panned out. There was no data ever uh, secured of an attack. More than that, the aftermath of this is very interesting because the soldier, the lieutenant colonel, was discharged from the service. He went back home. He got enormous acclaim in the southern part of the United States where he came from. And then what happened was that people in his same unit grabbed a a prisoner who they said without justification had uh, raped Jessica Lynch. I have no idea whether Jessica Lynch was raped. The evidence suggests not, but I don't know. But at any rate, there was no way these soldiers could have known that this was a perpetrator in that event. They held the guy on the ground, they beat him up, and then they wound up kicking him in with combat boots between the legs. And so the Army attorneys wanted to uh, prosecute these guys, but they'd set up this precedent of letting this lieutenant colonel off, and so they actually did do a mild sanction and wound up sending these people home. Well... The problem then is that this same unit went off to Abu Ghraib and became the unit that was subsequently involved in the Abu Ghraib abuses. And so, in fact, the way that the previous two events of torture had been handled was part of giving a green light to this unit that the abuse of prisoners would be tolerated, if not rewarded. I imagine that you believe that as a society, we all share responsibility for these types of scandals. But do you feel that as medical professionals, our responsibility is even greater? 
Well, I do think it's greater for a couple reasons. Number one, as docs, we understand what we're looking at. And furthermore, there's a expectation that when we see an abused person, if, say, a wife with bruises comes into our clinic, uh, we record the nature of those abuse, uh, bruises. We give her a comprehensive exam rather than just treating her chief complaint, which might be a, a broken job, but we look for other signs of abuse. We take photographs, and we also record her, her immediate statement of what happened so that other people who are professional evidence gatherers at least have access to the most immediate account of the damage. That is our, how we are trained. And when we fail to do that, the entire system of data collection on abuse falls apart. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Stephen Miles, author of Oath Betrayed, Torture, Medical Complicity, and the War on Terror. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Miles. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.